Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Stephanie Withers. Stephanie is the head of investment operations at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation's investment office, an $8 billion private foundation. I really enjoyed Stephanie's authenticity to make the world and her investment office a better place. We cover their initiatives on DEI and what they call their expanding equity program. You may want to check it out because this program is unique and that others can access it at no cost. We then turn to their tech stack, the importance of business process mapping, and how their annual operations survey identifies and prioritizes change management in full partnership with the investment team. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Stephanie Withers. Stephanie, thanks for joining today. Thank you, Scott. Really excited to talk about all things foundation related and your background. Let's just kick it off and tell me about your path to the seat at Kellogg Foundation. Well, thank you, Scott. And I should probably start off by saying currently I am the head of investment operations for the Kellogg Foundation Investment Office. The team manages the W.K. Kellogg Foundation Trust and W.K. Kellogg Foundation Endowment. And our focus at the foundation is to provide that steady source of long-term revenue because every dollar we generate is an additional dollar that goes towards helping children. Our mission is really to make sure that we are assisting vulnerable children and their families. And one of the ways in which we do that is to advance racial equity and diversity and inclusion as we feel that this has a positive impact on our investment returns. So getting into that, my background and where I began I started out in my career at a regional accounting firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Go Blue. Interestingly enough, I actually started on the tax side. But what was a little bit unique is that I did tax and audit. And the audits that I did were not for profit and governmental. Usually when you're in tax, you are doing for profit. And that's typically what you do in manufacturing. However, I had a nice blend. I had exposure to investments when I was auditing pensions at municipalities. And that's also where I had my first peek into private equity in some of those pensions. They were very interesting. 
Additionally, I had exposure to state, local tax, tax credits, and partnership taxation. After I was in public accounting, I was able to stumble upon an amazing opportunity at the University of Michigan in the Institute for Research on Labor, Employment, and the Economy. And we implemented a grant program focused on job creation, layoff aversion, specifically for small to medium-sized auto suppliers. Now, while this was an interesting opportunity, the timing is what made this one especially fascinating. Because like I mentioned, I was in Ann Arbor at Plant Moran, University of Michigan is in Ann Arbor. That's right by Detroit, Michigan. And that is the epicenter of the auto industry. So starting in October 2008, it's ground zero, GM, Ford, all the manufacturing plants are shuttered and all the suppliers were having a very hard time. Did you see this happening in advance of what the market was behaving at some level? At some level, we were seeing a slowdown and a pressure in public accounting to generate additional revenues. And for me, it felt like a good time to try and go to a more stable organization, just knowing what was happening and the trend I was seeing in our clients, the struggles that I was seeing. So to identify the University of Michigan and then find an opportunity there like this, it was kismet. I was able to go there. Interestingly enough, so I was the only accountant and working with a team of engineers and they were very experienced engineers that had left the field. And then there was a gentleman who was from IT. I've always had a keen interest in technology. So almost got a degree in IT, but felt that accounting was going to be a little bit more stable. When I was at U of M, one of the things I'll never forget is walking into these factories. And these were large factories that usually had around 300 employees. They would be shuttered. There would be all these rows and rows of CNC machines. And we walk the floors assessing the capabilities because what we would do is take a SWOT analysis and then try and help fund the turnaround or how they were going to create jobs. We're doing basically operational due diligence. What I realized during that time is what made the difference between a successful company and one that was shuttered. The pattern was diversification, diversification of the customer base, diversification of the products. And to this day, that's so translatable and applicable to every industry, obviously investments as well. And to see that in that time period, so obvious. And additionally, to see how when we asked them about marketing, they would talk about order taking. And to recognize that that lack of proactive marketing, looking at what how they could apply their skills to other areas, that was very interesting. Was there a lot of pattern recognition with the qualitative aspects of that? Absolutely. You could see the companies that had stayed active in their technical skill development of their employees who invested in building those up, um, their quality assurance program. And how long were you at that place? I was there for about three years. And then I had the opportunity, and I'm very not-for-profit oriented. I've always felt that's very important to try and make the world a better place, no matter what. And so I wasn't as motivated to work for a for-profit industry and noticed there was an opportunity at the W.K. Kelly Foundation as an investment accounting analyst. And it was a blend of audit and tax 
and investments. And again, it was for a mission and for a mission that related to me as a person aligned with my personal passions. I am a product of the Kellogg Foundation's work. So my school that I went to was created due to one of the missions of the foundation where they wanted to help rural education. And so they merged a couple school districts. And I can say I had a very good base education due to that work. It was like a culmination. I went to Kellogg Elementary. So this is my destiny to come here. And we joked a little bit about the Kellogg Foundation here internally that it calls you. This is a place where you really do feel the mission. We live and breathe it. We're all committed to it and have that tie. And then I've been here for 12 years now. And what's the distinction between those two areas? And so I don't think it's clear to me where the investment part is and then where the true foundation part is. How is it set up at Kellogg? So one thing about the Kellogg Foundation is we are a network door. So I actually like the fact that it's hard to understand the difference. What that means is that we do try and work very collaboratively with one another. And with finance and investments, we work side by side. So the investments team, we are charged with delivering those returns. We have a CIO, we have managing directors, we have a head of risk and asset allocation, and we have analysts and myself and then the ops team. The finance side, that's where we have investment accounting, but that's also tied with budget and with the booking of the general ledger. And then the rest of the foundation is our grant-making organization, and that's who actually expends the programmatic funds. And where's the capital come from? Is it all from the investment office, or are they continually raising money from the outside? No, we are a private foundation, so we do not accept outside capital. All of our mission completion is based on us generating revenue. You said it's $8 billion? $8 billion. What's the staff look like from a headcount perspective? Total foundation, we have a little over 200 staff. We're very embedded within the communities that we serve. So we've identified priority places, and we have offices in New Orleans, Mississippi, New Mexico, Mexico, and Detroit, Grand Rapids, and Battle Creek. So we have all of these offices staffed. And part of that is to provide benefit to people who live in those locations. We believe that communities have the answers and that we are just there to help bridge that gap and provide the funding. In order to make that happen, we've got to be there and in community, not just saying, here, community, this is what you need. We want to actually say, oh, okay, we hear you, we're part of you, and be that place that can partner with people. And same thing with the investment place. Everyone who comes to work here, everyone is very nice. And this is a very caring organization. Additionally, our investment team, we care about the mission. So we believe that it ties to that piece I was talking about, about diversity that I saw when I was at U of M and what made a successful company. Having a diverse organization and having a greater sense of belonging for those who come from different backgrounds and different races, that's important. And it's important as an investment community that we embrace that logic that we need to advance from a racial equity and diversity perspective to ensure that we are delivering the best returns. If we can help broaden that base to people of color and women, 
that's going to expand the capital that's out there. So it's not just for doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's also monetarily the right thing to do. So that's our belief. And we have a couple of different programs. We have an expanding equity program that was spearheaded by the investment team. Now it's a programmatic objective. There's a full team outside of the investment team that works on this. We work with large for-profit companies, investment firms, and we provide them the tools, the knowledge, the approaches, and really the blueprint on how they can help themselves create a more equitable workplace and really advance racial equity within their own companies. You can have a diverse hiring program, but if you don't create that sense of belonging and connection within the company, you're not going to retain the talent. So part of the expanding equity program is to educate how to do that and what's worked and what hasn't. We have an HR person that's on that team that will help with HR, programmatic people, racial healing is part of it. Our CIO, Carlos Ringhal, is brilliant. And this was a program that he actually designed and came up with originally. This is an area that a lot of people want to do, but it's really hard to one, define and to execute. So my question is, if I wanted to learn more about that blueprint, where would I go and find that? Great question, Scott. You can go to www.expandingequity.com. And that is where you can find your full toolkit and resources. This is just an area that just continues to evolve and blossom and it's needed in the market. But I think a lot of people, they want to do it, but they don't know where to go. And we talk about the E, the S and the G, but a lot of people don't know how to push through those three letters. Yeah. Well, and this makes it real because in order to be able to do it, you really got to understand what you're trying to do and address biases that exist. I mean, we're all born with them. They exist. You have to acknowledge your biases in order to be able to address them. And this is a program that helps create the structure that'll allow for that to happen. And then it's up to people to take that journey on. So it goes beyond just, oh, I'm going to check the box to, no, this is part of who we are. This is how we're going to deliver. So how much is that effort part of your own selection process for managers? We have a couple of items. So we have a diverse manager program specifically where we have overall more than 35% of our U.S.-based assets and the trust diversified portfolio are invested with firms that majority owned by people of color or in women. So that is a program that we have specifically. We are seeking out that talent. Additionally, we understand that everyone's on a journey. So as we're going through the process, we are trying to understand where people are on their journey and inviting them to come along. You can do both. You can achieve the racial equity and diversity outcomes that we have and also achieve great returns because we know that at the end of the day, we have to be able to provide those returns for children. So when we're looking at managers, we're looking for people who are in the long-term partnership with us and people who have that agility and flexibility in their own mindsets to embrace this methodology. Like I said, I saw 2008 suppliers that didn't understand the importance of diversity, that stayed singular-minded, and they didn't have business during that time. It's a similar pattern that could be seen with this effort. 
you have to stay diverse and be delivering to the needs. What inning do you think we're in in this evolution? I would say probably the second or third. It's very early. There is an event every year. It's called the National Day of Racial Healing. And it happens on the day after MLK Day every year. And it's focused on truth-telling and racial healing. Because without being able to speak the truth, you can't heal. But we believe that healing is how this happens. And if people haven't healed, we can't move to the next inning. Our take is that if we can help the healing, then hopefully we can get to those next innings. Let's go back to your first days when you moved over to the investment side. What was that transition like? It was really interesting to come in to the foundation and in the space that we were in. I think our diversified portfolio at that time was pretty small. It was about a couple billion, so not as large as it is today. And when I came in, we had paper records. So we had folders. I still have some binders, I believe. It wasn't the ancient times, but it was definitely during that transition from paper to digital. One of the first projects that I was assigned was to do a little bit of a deeper dive on the tax analysis. Again, with my background in taxes and partnerships and not-for-profits, I was able to jump in. Then she was our CFO, but now she is our CEO. And the gentleman I reported to was the director of finance, who is now our CFO, They wanted to take a look at the taxes. So we went in and did a deep dive on the structures that were there and how we were reporting things with our custodian, how we were booking things in the GL. And you're tax exempt, right? We are tax exempt. Now, however, we are a non-operating 501c3 private foundation. We are subject to, at the time it was one to 2%, on our net investment income, so realized gains, interest and dividends. That's what's taxed at 1%. And we also have to pay out 5% every year for grant making. Those are the rules for private foundations. It's a pretty intense taxation regime. So when we looked at this, it's highly complex. When you're dealing with the investment world with this large of a portfolio, you're dealing with hundreds of entities and hundreds of thousands of documents related to taxes. And when we were able to take a look at that, we identified about half a million dollars of savings per year. And we're able to take that and develop a proactive approach. This is something that's typically overhead. It's expense. It could be ignored. It typically is because you think, oh, tax exempt or taxes, whatever, we just have to pay them. This is a really important way that teams can generate additional revenue or reduce costs. And so just having that lens of audit and tax gave you a little bit of spidey sense of, hey, we need to refile. There's a way in which you have to identify entities. And if you don't have somebody who's able to really see that and identify it and understand the implications and how that flows through your entire system from inception all the way through how you're booking your journal entries, you are likely leaving money on the table. And so having that connection is critical and really looking at that process. So it's, it's not a simple analysis. You have to have somebody who likes to get into the details and really look at that. But now we have the process designed. 
We look at everything up front. We identify all the entities. We identify the filings and we identify the risks. And so we're able to have a well-structured approach towards this process that is saving us money every year, as well as legal fees. Because instead of having the lawyers look at everything and try and identify these items, and then at the end of the year, try and identify these items with your tax people, we're doing all of that seamlessly. The best controls are preventative, that's detective. So this is an area where being preventative pays. Yeah, when I was in practice, if I had an issue, I called my auditor, like, here's what we're thinking about doing. Just so at the end of the year, we're not staring at this hot mess of something and they have to get comfortable with it. Your finance people are your partners. They want to help you. That's the biggest misnomer, in my opinion, is some people have that philosophy of keep your auditors out, keep your finance people out. That is not the way to be. Transparency, clarity, and partnership, that's how you achieve your outcomes. That goes back to lean thinking and lean methodology. This is where this thinking for me became so clear is when I was able to see the path and you can see more clearly how the process should flow, if that's well-defined, it's going to free up people to deliver on more valuable tasks and also ensure that everyone's oriented towards that North Star. Those principles have guided everything we do from an operational perspective. We want to be efficient. We want to have clarity. We want to continually address our processes, so continuously improve them. We also want to have stability. So there is that balance of ensuring we're very agile and we're constantly making it better, but that we're also able to execute the processes we have. How do you do that? What does that actually mean in our business? I think there's so much untapped potential to employ this in many firms. But how I've done it is I do process mapping. I utilize flowcharts. I utilize narratives. I meet with every person. So you, you can't do this from an ivory tower. You have to have the people who are doing the work be part of the process. That's where you get your value add. And that's also how you get buy-in. So if someone's doing it, they're going to know, well, this is really stupid, but we do this thing. How can we make this better? And they'll probably have the best ideas for doing it. So by doing that process map, we can create a current state and then also identify the future state and communicate that and develop that path to get there. And additionally, we try things on. So we're very experimental here. We will try things on and then see how we can get there. And we also understand it comes down to that having focus on the Kellogg Foundation mission, knowing that that's where we're oriented. We are here to deliver returns for children. So every dollar we save, every dollar we make is helping to deliver our mission. Maybe to put some concreteness behind it. So what's a couple of high level use cases of what it is and then how do you put it on paper? I love Lucidchart. They have everything in there. We've used it on our cash process, how we manage cash and also our document management process. When I first started this paper, so over the years, we've implemented capital call management. So that's through our bank. We have a CRM backstop. So we now have everything within the system. We put things in fields. We are pretty automated and we have captured our records in electronic format and in fields that's reportable. So as we've moved through this decade, 
into this more automated way of doing business, we've had to map that out. Let's take the document management as one example. So when we first started, we're receiving these documents in the mail and the facts. So we had to draw that out. This is how all these things are coming. Interestingly enough, when we drew that out, we identified all these other sources where things were coming. And you start to see these issues. Some statements were only coming to certain managers. They weren't coming centrally. So we had to design a way to receive them centrally. So as we mapped that current state, we were able to see those issues that were stopping us from being efficient. And then we were able to move and identify that, okay, our future state is we need to have everything centralized. Well, in order to have everything centralized, we need to have a contract instruction form that lists everything, that we have a centralized inbox. We need to have somebody looking at that inbox. So we were able to develop that future state, staff to it, and then implement it. And then again, continue and readdress it. Now we have document automation through Intellects into Backstop, our CRM. In order to move to that, we had to map out the exact duties that everybody was doing and see how that flow was going to happen. And now we know where our risks are as well from an operational perspective. Are you always following up with the managers and saying, hey, we're not getting this? Yes. And some managers listen better than others. How much when you redesign these processes, do you have to recalibrate the team and who's responsible for what? I feel like it is a constant conversation to make sure we're all on the same page. We meet frequently to talk about it. So for example, operationally, we have a meeting every other week to talk about the processes, what's working, what's not. Do we need to change who's doing anything or is it making sense from the way things are flowing? We're constantly talking with our custodian. We meet weekly every Monday and talk about what's happening for the week. What can we do differently? Because we're all trying to make sure we're focused on that value, which is how can we constantly make this better? So one related question I have on that is, so if I am new to Kellogg, you heard me off the street, how comfortable do I have to get with just sharing what I see versus there's a lot of environments that will say, oh no, you need to just keep your head down and be quiet and do your job. Oh, that is not how it is here. No, it is so important. And it's hard when you're new in your career to share their ideas. It's critical here. I know we would not be where we are today if, for example, I had come in and not brought things to my CIO's attention. I know that we wouldn't have been able to do what we do and make the improvements we have done if the people that I hire didn't bring those things up to me. And part of that is making sure that when those people do bring ideas up, that I'm embracing and hearing those things and at least trying to incorporate them where I can. So I think it's both. You have to have people who are willing to share and also have to be willing to hear. So you have nice and kind people who are willing to tell you maybe something that you don't want to hear. We are a very nice culture. And one of the things we struggled with was we are too nice. So there's a lot of very polite conversations we have, but we've gone through a lot of training here through Center for Creative Leadership, utilizing SBI methodology for both positive and negative feedback. It allows people to take the judgment out. That's how it's designed because feedback is critical. No one needs to take it personally. That's the way that the SBI is designed is how can you deliver it in a way that doesn't feel personalized or at least doesn't feel like someone's being judged. And so it starts out with, here's the situation. 
this is the behavior that I witnessed and this is how I experienced it. And then that can help provide that opportunity for dialogue. So instead of not having a methodology to have those type of conversations, this allows the team to have the framework. And what is SBI? So you state the situation like, Sky, I'm in a conversation with you. I appreciate how you provided me questions ahead of time. That made me feel prepared. So that's an SBI that's positive. This is the situation. This is the behavior. That's how it impacted me. This is stuff that people learn on the fly and usually learn by actually not doing a great job at it. You talked about being a technology-focused person. What about the foundation from a tech stack? Where's it today? Where was it? Love a little bit of insight on what you're up to there. Like what I said, when I first came on board, it was was paper and binders. And now we have a CRM with document management where all of our documents are getting electronically. We do utilize Backstop and Intellects. One of my favorite tools, and my team knows this very well, is I love Backstop. The reason why I love it is because I can build any field that I want with it. It has documents, it has numbers. This means I can capture quantitative and qualitative in the same system without having to build this into a backend data warehouse and then pull reporting out of it. So we've built the system up to the point where that's actually how we do our investment memos is everything is captured within the system. That's how we do our due diligence. We store everything in that system. And that's really become our hub of where all of this lives. And the flexibility of it is what I really like because we can design on the fly. Plus they were a smaller company, very focused on large investors. So having a tool like that, that's been a big one for us. We implemented um, FactSet. We are in the process of doing the whole portfolio risk system. And we also have other tools that we utilize, like we use SurveyMonkey for manager surveys as well as internal. Anything else? This is an interesting one. Allborn is something that I consider both a service provider and a tech stack. They have a pretty cool platform. So we do utilize that as well. And we have investment and we also have a pitch book as well. So that's what it looks like. There's some other little tools. Like I mentioned, Lucidchart, amazing from a process mapping perspective. Those are our main systems. Anything on the holistic portfolio management side of things? Backstep gives a bit of that holistic view as far as because it does have performance calculations in it. So it is our performance engine as well on top of having our custodian performance reporting, right? So custodian book of records, but we also have our internal investment performance that's non-lagged. And that's where Backstop can help deliver that. And then we have Backstop to look at the whole portfolio from a risk perspective. Another thing we talked about, you had a focus on EDI. Can you share a little bit about that as well? It is still shocking to me that we haven't gotten to a point where we have EDI in a structured format like what you see at Walmart or those type of exchanges where we're getting the same information. So why do we have all of this data locked up in PDFs? Now, there's been a lot of technologies out there that I've seen have the PDF readers and they can pull the data out. The issue is things aren't structured 
enough to where they can be sent between these platforms. So there's still a lot of data manipulation that has to take place or manual entry or manual checking because these reports are all being pushed out from PDF perspective. I think we're at a really exciting time. However, I see a light out there and I'm still waiting for the perfect vendor to come to us. However, there needs to be a standardization and a commitment from my perspective in the field to be able to create the standardized format that we all agree upon. We have it for, we've seen in like 10 Qs and 10 Ks. So can we get there, please, for at least the most important elements? We're talking about performance, capital account statements, even things like here's our letter. It feels like that could even be released in a way where we could uptake the information in a much easier format. Knowing how difficult it is, we've implemented SOTPs and integrations between our systems. It requires a lot of work to monitor these things. So yeah, we're not doing the entry and we're able to get greater quantities of data. We've had to design some pretty intense systems to check that information. So that's, I think, one of my big things I want to see and that I'm always on the lookout for is that I want to stay agile enough where I'm not so committed to every single tech stack that we currently have. And so I want to be agile enough in our operations where we always own our data. But I also want to see where we can really get the value out of our portfolio and not be spending so much time, energy, effort as a whole field taking these pieces of information out. Because the risk of error here is so high. And it's so many data points. The people we have that are so good at finding these errors could be refocused and allow their value to come out to be more analyzed in the portfolio instead of just trying to check for data errors. That's a massive amount of talent or cost savings we could have. So for me, that's what I really want to see the industry get to. I'm still trying to understand why it's not there, even though it's in other industries. On the investment decision, it seems to me you spent a lot of time partnering with your investment team. Then you hinted on internal surveys. I'd love to hear more about that because I think that's a corner not a lot of people shine a bright light on. We are very focused on how we make our investment decisions and want to ensure that we have the right structure to make the right decisions. One of the things operationally that I've done it for a couple different years, and I want to make sure I have a survey where I'm actually capturing the input from the team. So I meet with the team and we talk about it. We'll talk about all these questions. But having a survey where I actually have people score and provide an opportunity for them to deliver feedback. One of the things that we did this year was I had a question. I was trying to figure out Okay, everyone's got their own perspectives. We all have our own area that we're in. But could I get agreement or find the top three projects that we should be working on that would really, that across the teams, we have consistency and not everybody seeing that this is a problem. And for me, I want to identify the processes that are the least efficient. So the ones that are not efficient and that are not well understood. So I want to tackle, is it unclear? 
or is it inefficient? So those are my two metrics right there. I developed a scorecard for people and I forced them to rank the processes for both of those items and then was able to take that data and see it for the whole team, do a heat map of where are the areas of focus, and then reviewed it with the team. One of the things I found is that there's definite differences in opinion. I think part of it is role and part of it, whoever is closest to which process. But then it also gave me clarity on where I needed to train. Because part of the clarity issue is, is it clear that's where do people need training? And then we also need to have conversations. So if one person thinks this is the most inefficient process in the world, and another person thinks this is the most efficient process in the world, but we need to get on the same page. We also believe in direction, alignment, and commitment. And if we all need to be focused on the same direction, that comes back to true north. We need to be aligned that that's the direction we're going and then we can commit to going in that way. So when I looked at that survey where I saw differences in opinion, those were things I needed to bring to the team and say, hey guys, we are not on the same page here. Let's talk about why. So we can get on the same page, we can align and so we can move forward. And I think those are some of the best conversations you can have. What's an example of an area that maybe you had difference of, you needed to either spend more time explaining or you just have a difference of opinion? I'll give an easy one because this still resonates with teams. No taking. You're in a manager meeting. Talk about an AI opportunity. We started utilizing the Zoom AI summary. Very entertaining. It does a decent job though. I asked everybody how much detail is required. Is it a written narrative? Is it bullet points? And then I also had categories for the different types of meetings we have. So if it's an intro meeting, if it's an ongoing manager meeting, if it's a legal call, what are the different standards we have regarding to note-taking? Some of the areas were 100% aligned. Everybody was on the same page. We need to have written narrative for these four areas. Then other areas, some people didn't even think a note was required. Other people thought a written narrative was required. And some people were like, it's bullets. Or it just depends on whether a notice required. So it was an all over the board situation. And the other thing that's interesting there, I also checked to see, hey, do you need to pass it along to the team? Or is this just something you store in the system? And if you think about teams and how they operate, if one person thinks that you should send out every note for every manager meeting that you're having, and another person thinks I should just do bullets and put it in the system, you have completely differing expectations on communication, which could create a gap in your team than the way in which you operate and view each other. Unmet expectation that things like that can identify to make sure, okay, guys, are we all on the same page? Let's have this conversation. And are we okay if we have different expectations? Let's make sure we're all aware of that. So it's reducing that bias in our own brains. And was it hard to get everybody to harmonize onto one process or agreement? 100%. I would love a process that fits everybody's flow of working. We are all unique beings that work in our own ways. So my goal is to hit more of the 80% satisfaction. And, and we all have to give. There's going to be a process potentially that may work for me. And I also focus on the areas where it's consistency across the team. We don't need to have a process for how you read your emails. I don't care how you read your emails. That's your own thing, how you want to do that and how you want to handle your email box. Now, if it's something where 
that manager communication, well, that better be coming centrally because that affects other people and that affects other outcomes. Where we have that overlap is where we have to have consistency in our process. And then where we don't need that consistency, that's where people should have the freedom to work how they want to do. So that's part of how you get people on board to say, we're not going to touch this area and explain the why. I feel like if people understand why a process is in place or what the downstream implications are, they can get on board. Is there a time when you have to just take it up the chain and somebody needs to do that? Okay, this is what we're going to do because we're just have two polarizing areas of contention. There have been moments. Typically, we even have those conversations, though, together. It may be a limited pool of people that are together, but the person needs to hear from the CIO, this is the way we're going. And there can be those moments, like you said, harmony can be achieved even if you have different approaches, as long as everyone's on the same page, as long as that communication is open we're going to do this differently. Like we've agreed I'm going to do bullets and I'm going to do narrative because that's the way I think. Okay, fine. If that's the agreement, that's the agreement. But then that agreement is documented that these are areas where we're going to have gaps. I don't necessarily think it's efficient to write narratives, but that is everybody's prerogative. How often are you doing these surveys? I only do it once a year. We do a lot of surveying internally. We do surveying for our investment decisions. We do surveying for our staff as a whole. And so to do it any more than that would be difficult because we have other surveys we do every month to capture how people are doing overall foundation-wide. We can see how people are feeling about their work. People can provide feedback every month organizationally. And then I do my survey, like I said, once a year, but I meet with everybody way more than once a year. Like we do daily stand-ups. What does that mean? So because we are this networked org, we have a set practice where every day we're supposed to have daily stand-ups on 15 minutes, you get together. This is what I'm working on, round robin, and you can bring up so people have awareness of what people are working on and then also can come up and challenge problems. So if you have issues, you can bring them up if they need escalation. So having that, that point for us as an investment team, we'll meet every day, but we have a little bit of different topics. Like one day is a pipeline meeting. So what's coming down the pipeline? We have finance come in and we talk that. So really just communicating all groups and stand up and say, here's what's going on and just cross-pollinate ideas. Yes, 100%. Gets a little bit more challenging with travel. So not everybody can be at every meeting, but at least it keeps that connection. If you look down the road, what are you focused on for the foundation and with this idea about continual improvement? I'm looking for that next software. I'm looking for this evolution of AI. I think it has some really cool implications. I have this dream. There's a couple of tools I've heard of. I've seen some demos, but I haven't heard of it in active use. This ability to chat with our documents. Can I go into my system and say, tell me the returns last quarter and not have to open a PDF or go to a page? So we're not spending time customizing the dashboards or reporting or feeding these systems, that on-the-fly agility of being able to get the information as needed, I'm really looking for that. Additionally, KYC and AML are just painful processes. So to streamline that, and I know there's new regulations and there's new systems out there starting in January 1st, 
we're going down that road. That's more of right now, figuring out how we can address that issue in a more streamlined fashion. I'd love to close out with two questions and get your perspective. And the first question is, what advice would you give an emerging manager from an operations perspective? I think the biggest key is to find the right operational partners and staff. I think operations can be seen as an afterthought a lot of times, but if you have the right operational partner, they can excel your growth. They can handle all those tasks that can tie you down. And additionally, do not think that you have to be the one that's always selling the idea. Ensure that you have others who can help sell for you because when we see emerging managers, their talent is investing. Yes, they can talk about their ideas, but you should have somebody else who can handle your marketing, your investor relations. Don't underestimate the importance of those roles. I think those are big things and fully investigate any custodians or admins that you take on to ensure they're going to meet your needs. And what does that mean for you? How do you fully investigate those groups? Well, first of all, you have to have a good operational partner that can understand exactly what those groups can do for you and what they can't do for you. And how are they going to work with the organizations that you're partnering with? So if you are utilizing Sicko, what is their turnaround time as far as ensuring the investor statements are out? What does their staff look like when that staff has to communicate to the investees? What does that process look like? So to really understand that and to understand how they're accounting for your information and for your investments, really important that you understand that. And then my other question is, what is the one industry resource you most commonly refer to people? Well, of course it's capital allocators. (laughs) That's the number one. That's where I go to find out what's happening in investment operations. There's a group for foundations, it's called Foundation Financial Officers Group. That's been a great group for me to have those contacts and kind of get that information. I would say those are the resources. And then MFA has been great. OPA, those are great resources and great tools. Yeah, there's a lot of really good, rich information on that, no matter what size organization you are. Yeah, kind of yourself. Well, great. Stephanie, this is very insightful. Appreciate your sharing all the things that you're doing and look forward to staying in touch. Yes, thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.